In a beautiful marina-side neighbourhood boasting views of the mountain range, access to a sparkling expanse of water, and just minutes away from the ocean, Marina de Gama exists. But something is brewing under the surface. Families who can afford it have chosen to make this area their home, taking evening walks along the flay and having afternoon sundowners as the sun sets behind the mountain. One such family were the Adlingtons. Debbie, Tony, Kevin, Caitlin, and Craig. The perfect family, the perfect life. But things are not always as they seem. This is the case of the Adlington Family Massacre. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. And if you're looking for me in between episodes, you can find me on these platforms too. Much of the information for today's episode has been sourced from a book that was written about the case, Mom Interrupted, which I will link in the description box if you would like to check out after the video. So let's get to it. This narrative is not just a narrative of trauma, tragedy and grief. But this narrative, unlike many of the others I speak of, is one of hope one of the resilience of the human spirit and ultimately one about the strength of a woman but i'm getting ahead of myself so let's start at the beginning debbie mckinnis was born in kwazulu natal in 1960. she had a close relationship with her parents and she looked up to their marriage as something that she wanted to emulate one day when she grew up she was the middle child with an older brother Nigel and a younger brother Bruce. She had a happy childhood and attended school in Manzimtoti, a lovely small coastal town in KwaZulu-Natal. After finishing school at around the age of 20 years old, she had married an accountant, much to the displeasure of her family. Oh no, not because he was an accountant, but rather because they felt that something was just not quite right there. And after a year and 10 months, her family turned out to have been right after all, and the couple were divorced. Turns out he was a philanderer, and towards the end, there had also been physical violence that had permeated their relationship. Unable to continue accepting his apologies, the marriage had ended. And it was only a few months later that Debbie would find the man whom she believed would be her Prince Charming. Debbie met Anthony John Adlington when she was 23 years old. At the time, she had been working for a group of pharmacies in Durban, and the way they had met seems like something that you would see in a movie or a TV series. She was in the shops, checkers to be precise, and she was wearing her pharmacy uniform with her name tag. And it was here that Anthony, or as he was better known, Tony, had seen her. He, obviously seeing something that he liked, had then approached her and asked her if she knew where the records and tapes were in the store. Yes, this was the 80s and CDs were not a thing 
yet. And that single encounter, however brief, would change the course of her life. Later that afternoon, Tony had then called the pharmacy she worked at, asked for her, spoke to her, and asked her out on a date. So yeah, this could be perceived as incredibly cute, or for those of you who have watched You, it could potentially give Joe Goldberg vibes. However, although not fully convinced it was the greatest plan to meet a stranger, Debbie was encouraged by her colleague and ended up going on that first date. So who exactly was this mystery man? Tony was nine years older than her and at the time he was working for a company that manufactured medical equipment. He was confident, dressed well and he appeared to take incredibly good care of himself. He also came from a loving family. His parents were still living in Zimbabwe, which was known as Rhodesia at the time, and his father was a medical professional. He had had a good childhood growing up with three sisters, adored as the only boy in the family. After school, he had completed his studies in accountancy, and then, like all white men of his time, he was sent to do compulsory military service. He would end up spending two years in an administrative position with the police before making the move to South Africa. From the time he was a young boy, he was serious about what he wanted to achieve and who he wanted to be. He held himself to an incredibly high standard and was determined to be in control of every situation he found himself in. And unfortunately, one of these situations would be his relationship with Debbie. Their relationship had progressed fairly quickly, and within a few weeks, he had asked her to move in with him. She had then sought the advice of her parents, as she was worried she would make another poor decision like her first marriage, and after a while, she had agreed, and she had moved in with Tony, her companion, a cockatiel, Billy, in tow. Billy, however, was forced from being a free-roaming bird to living in a cage as Tony didn't want him to soil the apartment. After a while, things just still weren't working out, and so Billy was relegated to life with Debbie's mom. He unfortunately got out and flew away one day and was never found. However, in hindsight, he managed to escape the toxic situation. And in later years, Debbie would relent that perhaps she too, like him, should have flown away. So why exactly am I mentioning Billy, you may ask? Well, the entire situation surrounding him living with them was the first adversity, if you would call it that, that Tony and Debbie would face as a couple. And the way in which they had handled that particular situation would set the blueprint for the way their relationship would continue. In this instance, Tony had decided that he did not like something. He had stated the law and Debbie had not fought his decision. She had backed down and in doing so, she had sacrificed her beloved pet for peace and Tony's approval. Their relationship would progress and soon echoed many instances of this initial event, such as when Tony purchased a piece of land for them to build a home on, only for it to become a project that he kept for himself alone. Tony had then been transferred to Johannesburg, and without even speaking to Debbie, he had made the decision to move. And so she had chosen to leave with him. In February of 1988, the two were married, and just a year later, they had decided to start a family. And so, on the 11th of January, 1990, a healthy baby boy was born, Kevin John Adlington. He had blue hazel eyes, 
fair skin and as he grew older his naturally curly hair would have a reddish tint to it. It was agreed that Debbie would stop working and she would focus her attention on raising their bundle of joy. At this time Tony was, as Debbie would later state, the gentlest and most tender he had ever been. He spent much of his free time in the evenings playing and interacting with Kevin but he apparently drew the line at changing diapers. And speaking of diapers, whilst Kevin was still in his, Debbie and Tony had decided that they wanted to try for another baby. And so in 1991, Caitlin was born on the 29th of August. She was the perfect addition to their little family and Kevin loved her. Tony and Debbie had agreed that they only wanted two children and so they were overjoyed when they had had a boy and then a girl. However, it was just a mere year later that Debbie had fallen pregnant with their third child. Tony was unhappy at the prospect of this baby. It was not part of his plan. Although on the work front he was still successful, emotionally his state of mind began to change. Nevertheless, time waits for no one. And so on the 1st of December 1992, Craig Anthony Adlington was born. He was the spitting image of his father and thus he kind of wormed his way into Tony's heart. And so the little family continued to exist with the children growing up and Debbie forming close bonds with other mothers in the area. And everything was peachy keen until Tony announced that he had once again been transferred, this time to Cape Town. And so in July of 1993, the family had moved to the city where everything would later change. The city that would bring so much of heartache, but the city that would also bring healing. In Cape Town, the family had moved to the upmarket suburb of Constantia. Tony was working for Galaxy Jewelers at the time. Kevin was a happy toddler, quiet and confident. Caitlin was a serious little girl. Shy but kind and loving. And Craig was, as described by Debbie, pure sunshine. And it was shortly after settling that Debbie decided one day to surprise Tony and the family with a schnauzer puppy. A breed of dog that Tony loved. But the surprise did not go too well. And Tony was not happy with the puppy that Debbie had picked from the litter. And thus he had returned it and he had picked his own puppy. And this was how Hazel made her way into the Addington family. Months later, Kevin got his own dog, a border collie named Jackie. That, however, was short-lived as Tony did not care much for the damage to the garden that Jackie made. And eventually, even though Kevin was so very close to her, Jackie had to be rehomed. Debbie had decided that it would be for the best after one particular incident where Tony had aimed a kick in Jackie's direction. And so it was evident once again that Tony had control of the situation. He had control of his family. They, however, would soon get another little schnauzer named Henry who would become Kevin's best friend and companion. Soon, all three children were in school and Debbie and Tony bought a coffee shop in Claremont in 1996. And life continued, busy as one can expect, but more or less happy. Until 1996, when Debbie fell pregnant yet again. This time, Tony had told her without hesitation 
that she needed to terminate the pregnancy. She just couldn't bring herself to make that decision, but in a twist of fate, she was spared the choice, as it appeared that the pregnancy was not meant to be. Prior to the necessary medical procedure that was required, Tony impatiently sat waiting for Debbie to be admitted, worried that he would be late for an appointment. Yeah, it's definitely giving me husband of the year vibes. And after that, things were different between the two of them. For a long time, things continued as normal, I suppose. And they would have their rough patches like many couples do. However, the difference was that non-physical violence had become a norm for Debbie. Tony's frustrations and stresses were often taken out on Debbie. His behavior at times would be incredibly volatile with him screaming and shouting at Debbie in front of the young children, who became scared and submissive during these episodes. However, he was always apparently a great dad to them, as Debbie would attest to in later years. During this time, Debbie's greatest comfort was her friend Karen. And so when Karen was diagnosed with terminal cancer and given only months to live, Debbie felt lost. As Debbie spent more time with Karen and the illness progressed, things at home continued to decline. Tony's angry outbursts were more frequent and he began not spending as much time with his other kids as he did with Kevin. That being said, he wouldn't hesitate to make promises that he had no intentions of keeping, getting Kevin's hopes up only to nonchalantly dash them. And he would never ever give a reason for his behavior, and Debbie knew very well not to ask. Tony also behaved strangely at times, well, in my eyes at least. He would creep on his hands and knees in the dark into his children's room to scare them just as they were falling asleep. Like, I get it, playful dad and everything, but that's just a bit strange. And of course, tragically foreshadowing of the creeping he would do that fateful day. And although Tony could be playful and fun, he could also be downright malicious and dishonest. Behavior that would later result in him being referred to as a Jekyll and Hyde kind of character. Things like taking the change of a customer in front of him in the shop queue while no one was watching and then denying any knowledge of seeing the money or knowing about it. Or things like buying a portable radio, then grabbing a pack of batteries, opening them, placing them in the radio to test it and then taking the radio to check out without so much as mentioning the batteries. Or even things like taking the children out for a drive and buying them sweets and chips when he knew very well that Debbie had spent hours preparing a Sunday lunch. Small things like those that were in hindsight foretelling of the true nature of Tony. But also big things like when he sold their Constantia home without telling anyone. Yep, one day he had just announced to Debbie that the home was sold and the deal was done and dusted. And then he left her to explain that to the children. The children who had grown up in that home, who had spent many a happy day there, playing with their friends and fellow neighbors. And this is what led the Adlingtons to Marina de Gama, where tragedy would soon strike. 
Reminiscent of a Greek village with its white homes and perpetually blue days, Marina de Gama is built on the eastern banks and the waterways of the quiet Zanfle Lake, an inland saltwater lake connected to the sea. In those two years that followed, so very much would occur. Karen died in June of 2000 and Debbie struggled to come to terms with that loss. And during this time, unbeknownst to her, Tony was struggling himself. He had always owned multiple different businesses and juggled responsibilities quite easily, or so it seemed, known to many as a successful man. But several bad decisions later, the financial pressure was growing. And for someone who did not accept failure or being seen as one, Tony began to spiral. So you may be thinking, well, Bella, why didn't Debbie just leave? Honestly, though, if you've never been in such a situation, you may not understand the true intricacies and difficulties in not only being able to think clearly and think for yourself, but actually being able to follow through with the thoughts that you are having. They had never spoken about divorce, but during one argument, she had said to him, sometimes I just feel like leaving you, to which he had said, don't think you can take the children. As 2001 progressed, Tony began to spend more time in his study, and once or twice during that period, Debbie had even woken up in the middle of the night to Tony standing at the foot of their bed, silently just watching her. Yeah, pretty creepy if you ask me. Definitely Goldberg vibes. And so the December holidays rolled around. Debbie and the children had flown to Durban to spend some time with her parents. And for two weeks, Tony was alone in the home. Alone to plan. Alone to prep. Alone with his thoughts. It would later transpire that during this time, he had purchased an axe on the 2nd of December and a container of petrol on the 4th of December. And then continued with life as per normal. After Debbie and the kids had returned home, during one of their later conversations, Tony had casually mentioned that there may be a home in Kenilworth that they can move to, as he had a disagreement with the owner of the Marina de Gama home. It would later come to light that this disagreement was over unpaid rent, just one of the bills that Tony had failed to pay. The checks he wrote for the children's last school term of 2001 would also bounce too. Kevin had celebrated his 12th birthday at Spur on the 11th of January, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. But things were unraveling, and they were doing so quickly. And no one besides Tony knew just yet. That morning, the morning of the 16th of January 2002, began like any other. Caitlin was desperate to go and spend the day and possibly sleep over at her friend Jessica's home. Debbie had obliged and had dropped her off. She had then spent the morning shopping with the youngest, Craig. Tony, on the other hand, had taken Kevin and they had also gone to the shop, later returning with a brand new sound system that turned out cost 2,500 rand. Quite a bit for 20 years ago. And the check that Tony wrote would later bounce, although Tony would not be around to deal with those consequences. 
Kevin, however, was over the moon though, especially after the debacle with the quad bikes that passed Christmas. You see, Tony had spent weeks hyping up the boys, Craig and Kevin, telling them that he was getting them quad bikes for Christmas, even going as far as driving past dealerships on multiple occasions. But of course, they never turned up under the tree come Christmas time or at any point after that. Surprise, surprise. So the family's afternoon was spent relaxing until Tony said that he had some work to do at the office and so he had left. Returning at 6pm with Caitlin, a very grumpy Caitlin, mind you, in tow. He had driven over to her friend Jessica's home and he had picked her up even though she had plans to spend the evening there. He had claimed that she needed to tidy up her room and thus could not spend the evening out. Debbie, however, knew it was best not to argue with Tony's decisions and so she had worked on calming Caitlin down. At 7.30pm, the family sat down to what would be their last dinner together. Everything was as normal and the children had later gone to bed. Debbie had kissed them all goodnight and she had gone to bed in the main bedroom, pulling out the camping mattress that she kept in the room after she had had her varicose vein surgery on her legs done. Tony, however, did not come to bed. Debbie had been paging through a magazine and had fallen asleep, later waking up at around 5am to get up and go to the bathroom. When she woke up, the house was silent and Tony was not in the room. She then got back into bed and she was in and out of sleep when Tony had re-entered the room, wielding an axe. He then proceeded to hit her three times in the head with the blunt side of the axe. The first blow rendered her unconscious. The following timeline of events cannot be known for certain, but they are what is believed to have occurred, according to autopsy reports and forensic evidence. I warn you, this is not for the faint of heart. Tony would then continue to 12-year-old Kevin's bedroom, where he was fast asleep. He would deliver several blows with the sharp edge of the axe before moving on. Next was 10-year-old Caitlin, who would meet the same tragic fate. And then last, the youngest, Craig. He entered the room of the 9-year-old, who received the same blows to the head as his siblings had. But Tony was not done yet. He then had wrapped the body of each child in either a duvet or a sheet, and he had carried them to his study, where he had placed them in a row on the ground. Next to them was a pile of all their important family documents and photo albums. He then had poured petrol over everything and everyone. And sometime between 6.30 and 7am, he had set fire to everything with a 9mm in his hand. With the fire shooting up and the flames ignited by the petrol around him, he put the gun to his head and ended his life. He was 45 years old. The gun fell to the ground, and shortly another five shots would ring out as the remaining bullets would explode as the flames consumed everything. These shots would ring in Debbie's ears as she battled to cling to life in the main bedroom. Tony was dead before he even hit the ground. His death was instant but his children's were not. Later results would showcase that there was soot and smoke in their airways, which meant that they were left breathing after 
the fire had started. And that, for me, is probably one of the saddest parts of this case. I cannot imagine whether they were conscious enough to know what was happening, or that the person who was doing this to them was their own father. As you can imagine, with the fire and gunshots, soon enough neighbours had called firefighters and the police. As some firemen worked to control the flames, another had entered the property to conduct a search. The two schnauzers were found, they were alive and well, but they were locked in the family room, and they were barking and howling in fear and panic. Hazel had always been incredibly protective over the children. When they would play in the street, she would run out and she would watch them. If anyone tried to approach them, she would bark at them. As someone who has such a close bond with my dogs, I cannot imagine how traumatic it must have been for her to not be able to help the children she grew up with, the children she loved so dearly. As the firefighter had entered the home, it quickly became apparent as he entered the different bedrooms that something sinister had happened. There were blood splatters on the walls and bedding of the children's rooms, but there were no bodies. In the main bedroom, the body of a woman on the bed was discovered, with no evident signs of life. As the firefighter Craig was turning around to exit the room, the woman had raised her hand up. In absolute shock, he immediately began to work on her, as his team got the blaze in the study under control. Debbie, then clinging onto life, was intubated and airlifted to Grotteskur Hospital. And as the dust settled, the police worked together to establish what exactly had happened at 19 Cannon Island Way. But very soon, the discovery of the bodies in the study, along with Tony's gun, would help to provide some much-needed insight. Before I talk about Debbie and the days that followed, let's talk about Tony for a minute. Please keep in mind that my observations are not a diagnosis, and they do not relinquish any responsibility that Tony had in his actions. So what pushes a man over the edge? What causes a man to break? This question may not seem important, as the damage has already been done in this case at least. But perhaps exploring the answer to this question could help prevent future events. But keep in mind that every single life and story is different. The act of familicide has been shown through research to be a highly gendered crime. This doesn't necessarily mean that it is a male against a female crime, although mostly it is, but more so that it is violence that is driven by the social and structural aspects of gender. Familicides are almost exclusively committed by men in heterosexual family relationships. Often, these male individuals who murder their entire families are informally referred to as family annihilators. I'm not a fan of this term, as to me, it sounds like something that is from an action movie, not the description of a real-life and heinous crime that has taken place. The concept of family murder came under the spotlight in South Africa in the 1980s, when it was speculated to be a phenomenon occurring predominantly amongst white Afrikaans-speaking South Africans. 
However, it was soon realized that it wasn't culture or race that played a role in all of these cases. And most importantly, it was difficult to pinpoint the exact factor or elements that led to the heinous act. But let's talk about some risk factors anyways, how to spot them and how they apply, in this case at least. In around 90% of cases, the best predictor of domestic violence is past behavior. I mean, it kind of makes sense if you think about it. Behavior often tends to escalate, so if an individual can start raising their voices or striking inanimate objects, it's only a matter of time before they refocus their targets. However, not every case is preceded by violence. The overarching factor that exists in many of these cases is a sense of entitlement to control. The condition of over-enmeshment comes to mind. Individuals, in this case Tony, have the desire to control the family unit, from finances to daily activities. They also tend to view their family members as possessions, so the line and boundaries between their identity and that of their wife and children's is blurred. So whilst in some cases this control exists in overt and obvious domestic violence, on the other end of the spectrum, this control can result in regulated and repressed anger, with individuals being on the edge of a psychotic break. Research has also shown that the scariest part of it all is that about a third of men who kill their families have had no known history of domestic violence. According to research, many of these men have suffered many mental ills over a prolonged period of time. Each undealt with issue adds to the next and affects the overall ability to cope and deal with the situation at hand. These attacks are often not spur of the moment and are therefore planned. This is evident within the action of Tony, where he purchased the axe and the petrol he used weeks prior to the actual event. The second component, a vital one, to the experience of mental illness is that instead of dealing with their feelings or sharing their burden, it is kept hidden. This could be for various reasons. Perhaps the stigma around mental illness is too great or perhaps there is a lack of emotional and psychological support from their partner or family members. And then, although the guilt and depression is internalized, the anger is externalized. Their lives are spiraling and they're no longer attending the milestones or requirements that are tied to their gender identity as men. And sometimes they feel as though those around them are to blame. Tony's life was unraveling. Later investigations showcased that he had four aliases, four identities, all linked to one ID number. There were so many secrets that he was keeping. The thing is, I could discuss factors until I'm blue in the face, but often the perpetrator wears a mask of normality. They don't look suspicious. They don't strike you as dangerous. I mean, Tony was described by a colleague as a good and kind man, intelligent, a hard worker and very considerate to staff. Just beneath the surface though, these perpetrators are often desperate, anxious, angry, frustrated and struggle to socialize. 
Tony displayed many of these characteristics. He often took a quick dislike to new people and became frustrated whenever things did not go the way he wanted. Tony was also evidently quite controlling, as demonstrated by his earlier behavior. He exuded a rigid sense of control and thus failing financially to him as someone who had always placed significant emphasis on being successful left him and his ego bruised. Instead of reaching out and seeking support from those around him, those who cared for him and loved him, he internalized these overwhelming feelings. Men in society are often raised to believe that men should be strong and should not show any emotion because emotion is weakness. Remember, this was a different time. This was the early 2000s, around 20 years ago, when the importance of mental health for everyone, yes, men included, was not viewed in the light that it is today. Even now, honestly, it's still a work in progress to break the stigma around men showcasing vulnerability against men not having to continuously maintain a macho manly persona. Middle-aged family annihilators and those between 35 and 55 years old are often provoked by some kind of personal crisis. At the end of the day, these kinds of men, men like Tony, are fragile, or at least their egos are, and they find it impossible to cope with humiliation. Failures are fatal for them, failing at being able to provide and thus failing at exerting control over the family situation. In Tony's case, it was his financial failings that led to his feelings of shame, embarrassment and internal rage. This rage was aimed at erasing the failures of life. This was, in his eyes and in the eyes of many like him, the only answer. The triggering event or events leads to the perpetrator's ego being clouded by their cognitive distortions and their coping mechanism becomes deadly. Another disturbing aspect of this case for me is the unanswered question. Did Tony intend for Debbie to survive this ordeal? His actions in the years previously had often been spiteful, and so it was something that was in his personality arsenal, so to speak. On the night in question, he had attacked Debbie with the blunt side of the axe, but had used the sharp edge on his children. He had also left Debbie alone and unconscious in their bedroom, not moving her to the study as he had with the children. It was in this study that he destroyed any memories of the kids, any memories of happier times. Those actions appear, to me at least, as the actions of someone who didn't intend to kill her, but rather for her to suffer and to live with the consequences of his actions. And that is exactly what she would do and continues to do. After the tragedy, Debbie would spend many weeks in hospital. She had suffered depressed skull fractures amongst a host of other issues. Debbie would also be in a coma for a period of time too, whilst she lay unresponsive at times with no one knowing whether she would live or die. Her parents made the heartbreaking decision to hold the memorial for her children on the 29th of January, 2003. The pastor during the service would say, What is death? It is coming home, a divine welcome to well-loved children. Debbie lay in the hospital during the service, unconscious, 
her body fighting to survive. Luckily though, she was under the care of fantastic doctors who attempted to do all they could for her. And two weeks later, her brain began to flicker back to life. She was heavily sedated at this time, but it was at this point that she realized that something was drastically wrong. She couldn't remember exactly what had happened and no one had yet broken the news to her. I personally cannot imagine what it was like for her to hear those words, that all of her children were dead. Killed by the man she had married, the man she trusted, the man who was their father. And so the second blow, the news of what had happened, was dealt. Debbie went through days and weeks of healing both internally and emotionally. After three months in Grotescure, she was transferred to the Conradi Care Centre in Pinelands. The road to regaining her mobility was tough, but she was determined, and before long she was walking again. She still had, and to this day has pain on the left-hand side of her body, but she was alive. Of course, her story was all over the media, and so before long, there was a trust fund set up to help cover her medical and other expenses. Soon after, she went back to Manzimtoti to recover with the support of her parents. And after a long road of therapy and self-reflection, she was starting to heal. And so she made the move back to Cape Town, the place where it had all begun, the place where everything would change once again. But there was something missing, something that she longed for once more. A child, someone who would call her mommy. And so she decided with the help of a friend who happened to be a gynecologist to bring that longing into reality. Although she maintained she would not and could not bring herself to marry again because she felt she would not be able to trust her partner, she knew she was ready to resume being a mother. In February of 2005, she received the news that her round of IVF was successful and she was pregnant. Living in her own place and reunited with her beloved Hazel, Henry had stayed with the wonderful couple who had looked after them both all this time, Debbie was on a positive path. And fast forward to the 12th of November 2005, Kylie Ann was born and the world seemed just a little brighter again. Debbie went on to write a book, Mom Interrupted, and became a motivational speaker. Kylie Ann will never replace the children that Debbie has lost, but that is not her role nor responsibility. Kylie Ann renewed hope in Debbie, a hope that though so much has been taken from her, there could still be a sliver of happiness left in this life. I would like to take a moment to remember them, the three lives that were lost and the little humans that they were. Kevin was 12 years old, with red hair and a spontaneous, sunny disposition. He loved the beach, his friends, and had such a zest for life. He was described as marching to the beat of his own drum, embracing life wholeheartedly and loving with all he had. Caitlin was 10 years old, with blue eyes and blonde hair. She was the academic of the family. She excelled in school and loved to read. 
her nose always buried in a book. She was artistic too though, and enjoyed working with clay, paint and watercolours. She was shy, gentle and caring, gaining not only her looks from her mother, but her mother's nature too. And last, but most certainly not least, Craig was nine years old. He may have been the baby of the family, but he was the most gregarious of the three. He was always chatting and had an extremely close bond to his mother. He would often go fishing with his best friend, an activity which he thoroughly enjoyed. He was a caring and affectionate child, described as pure sunshine. Thank you for joining me this week to pay honour to their beautiful memories. All three had their lives abruptly and unfairly ended. They never had the opportunity to grow up, fall in love, travel the world perhaps, start a family of their own and just experience life. The factors that play a role in the execution of a heinous act like familicide are vast and it would be overly simplistic to reduce them to data on a spreadsheet. It's therefore vital, not only as mental health advocates, but as a society, to encourage an environment where mental illness is destigmatized. An environment where any gender of person feels comfortable to express their thoughts, their feelings, their mind. It is only with these changes that this disturbing phenomenon can see a decrease and hopefully one day a disappearance altogether. For Debbie Adlington, the chance to change the past isn't an option. She has overcome so much, both physically and emotionally. She is a representation of the fighting human spirit. Debbie Adlington, the sole survivor of what was termed one of the most brutal family murders in South Africa, is a woman of strength, of courage, of love. She is a testament to the belief that there can be life after loss and that the only way out is through, no matter how tough it may be. For this month and for always, her fighting spirit and her strength will be revered and remembered. Until next week, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!